Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I absolutely love Christmas. I really do. It is, it is my absolute favorite holiday of the year. How many of you would say Christmas is your favorite holiday of the year? A lot of you agreeing and saying it's your favorite holiday. Some of you just feel sorry for me today, so you're disagreeing with me, right? So, uh, no, it really is, though, for me. Christmas is just my favorite holiday of the year. I love everything about Christmas. And Christmas, one of the things that I think all of us love are all of the traditions that go along with Christmas. There are a lot of traditions that we in American culture in particular practice. And this week I looked up on the internet and did some research about some of the um, most practiced Christmas traditions in American culture. And there are several of them, and, and you probably are going to do most, if not all of these. But these are things that really saturate our culture at Christmas. For example, almost 90% of Americans will gather with family and friends on either Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. It's just something in our culture that we do on Christmas. We gather together with other people, either friends or family. Also, 90%, just under 90% of Americans will buy Christmas presents for either friends or family members. How many of you have been doing some shopping over the last week or so? How many of you got some shopping to do tomorrow, right? Yeah, some of you that like the rush of the last minute, being out there with all the crazy people shopping on the day before Christmas, right? Well, 90% of Americans will exchange gifts, and I, I love that part of Christmas. Some people get all down on it. They get all super spiritual, like we shouldn't exchange gifts, but I think it really is a token and a symbol of the great gift that was given at Christmas, and so we get to celebrate that in our culture, and it puts a lot of pressure on my wife because my wife knows how much I like the whole present thing. So she's got the pressure every year to make sure she lives up to that, and so that, that's something that's big to me. I like that. And then a, a third Christmas tradition, 80% of Americans will put up a Christmas tree. How many of you have already put up your Christmas tree, right? Yep. 80% of Americans are going to do that. They're going to put up a tree. Some of you just got it up this weekend. I saw you on Instagram just posting that you just got your, your tree up. But we're excited to get to decorate the tree. It's a, it's a Christmas tradition in our culture. 65% of Americans will send Christmas cards. They'll get the cards, write them out, put them in the mail. 65% of Americans do that. There are a lot of traditions that we use to celebrate Christmas. The problem is, for many Americans, and for that matter, people all around the world, all they know about Christmas are those traditions. It's all we understand about Christmas, is putting up a tree, getting together with some family, exchanging some gifts, putting some cards in the mail, having some meals together. And the reality of Christmas is that Christmas is about something so much bigger than that. 
Listen, that doesn't mean that any of those traditions are bad or wrong or we shouldn't do them. All I'm saying is if that's all you understand about Christmas, you have missed the biggest reason to celebrate this week. You see, the real reason to celebrate this week, Matthew wrote about it in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. Listen what he said. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name, say it out loud, Emmanuel, which translated means, say this phrase out loud, God with us. Say that again, God with us. Wow. God became a man. And dwelt among us. Did you hear that? The one who created everything that we can see, taste, touch, feel, smell. The God that created all of that, at a point in time, chose to, took, to take on humanity upon himself and live as a part of the creation that he created. And the Bible tells us that he was so human that if he were sitting in this room, you would not notice anything extraordinary about him. God became a man. It has to be one of the most awe-inspiring truths of the Bible. My mentor in his book, Because We Love Him, Clyde Cranford wrote it this way. Look at this on the screen. In his incarnation, that's the theological term for God becoming a man. In his incarnation, he did not come as a full-grown man, but as a helpless infant who had to learn how to walk and talk, how to read and write. As a boy and a young man, he studied and memorized the scriptures... (laughs) of which he himself is the author. He studied by the light of an oil lamp, though he is himself the creator of electricity. I'll say it again. Wow! God! became a man. At Christmas, that's what we're really celebrating. That moment in history when the one who existed outside the parameters of time chose to take on human flesh and enter the time that he created. The one who has no beginning and no ending entered time and existed in history as a human being. But listen, 
If all we have to celebrate is that Jesus came born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, you and I are still hopelessly and helplessly lost in our sin. But Jesus did more than just come. Matthew went on to say this in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Look what he said. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Read the last part with me. For he will save his people from their sins. You see, he did not just come and live a sinless life. God did not just become a man. God came into this world on a mission to redeem humanity from the sin of our lives. Christ came into this world, lived a sinless life, and then he offered that body on a cross for our sins and defeated death, hell, and the grave, rising again from the dead so that you and I could be gloriously saved, so that you and I, who were separated from God could be made right with God. And when we gather this week with family and friends, when we sit around a Christmas tree, when we're passing out those cards, as we are celebrating Christmas, we are celebrating the reality that God became a man and that that man offered his life on a cross for our sins and he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead so that you and I could be saved. That is why we celebrate Christmas. And all of the traditions are about that glorious celebration. Now, although we celebrate at this season, Jesus gave us a tradition, if you will, a practice that would allow us to celebrate the entire scope of His coming. We call that practice or that tradition the Lord's Supper, or some call it communion. The terms are interchangeable. And here's what I want you to understand about that. As we sit today to celebrate communion, as we come together today to take the Lord's Supper together, we are following in the footsteps of generations of believers spanning over the last 2,000 years who have gathered just like we're gathering today to celebrate the coming of Jesus and all that He accomplished. This is no just little rote exercise we go through in the church. This is a practice given to us by Jesus for us to reflect on all that He's accomplished. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to begin reading in verse number 23. And I want to read some verses that Paul wrote to us about how we do this. And then I want to share a few principles out of these verses. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. Beginning in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. In my blood, 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to give you some statements to help you really wrap your minds around why we're doing what we're doing today. The reality is that there are churches and Christians all over our country that will go through this practice of the Lord's Supper. But unfortunately, so many people don't understand why we do this. And at Hope, one of the reasons we do it the way we do it, whenever we take the Lord's Supper together, we really dedicate the entire service to it. We'll never tack it on to the end of a service because we believe Jesus gave it to us for a very significant purpose. And if we don't think about that, we'll miss the very essence for why He gave it. So I want to give you these four statements to kind of give you some understanding about why we do this and why this is significant. Here's the first one. The Lord's Supper invites us to remember all the gospel has accomplished in the past. I want you to read that off the screen with me. You ready? One, two, three. The Lord's Supper invites us to remember all the gospel has accomplished in the past. Did you hear it? Twice in these verses, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And it's important to understand that was not a suggestion that he was making. It's actually an imperative in the original language, which means it's a command. He was giving us a command for us to follow. He commanded us to practice this together. But he said, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. That's an important Greek word. We get an English word from this Greek word that we get the word remembrance from. And the English word that we've transliterated is the word memorial. What is a memorial? A memorial is a a word that indicates calling back into your mind a vivid experience from the past so that you can reflect upon the significance of that event. That's a memorial. It's a, it's, it allows us to bring back into our mind a vivid experience of that. We have when somebody dies, when somebody passes away. We hold what's called a memorial service. Why do we do that? We do that so that we can remember the life of the person who has passed and celebrate all that they lived for. That's what we do at a memorial service. It's an opportunity to reflect, to think back on everything that has been accomplished. That's exactly why Jesus gave us this practice. It's an opportunity for you and I to push pause. To just stop for a minute. In the midst of all the busyness. Midst of all the hectic schedules. You see, Jesus created life. He knows what life is. He knows that life has twists and turns and challenges and schedules and things to accomplish. He knows all that. And so Jesus gave us this practice so that as often as we did it, we would stop and we'd think. And we would be caught up in the wonder of all that He accomplished in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection. And we would celebrate. You see the difference than just going through the motions, grabbing the cup, grabbing the bread, being done, out the door, and stopping and remembering? 
You see, one of the problems a lot of us have is we, we, we've heard the gospel so many times we've gotten over it. Some of us are so familiar with all that Jesus accomplished that we're not moved by it anymore. And Jesus gave us this practice so that we would call a timeout and just for a moment reflect. Alan Redpath, I love the way he wrote about it. Look what he said on the screen. He said, it is the one who has given something for us at Calvary, asking each of us to remember his death, to put that at the very center of our Christian experience. It is he who loved us even unto death, calling us out from the busyness and often the barrenness of all our pressure and work that we might wait upon him in the stillness of our hearts and worship him. He points us back not to his life or example, but to that which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel, the atonement of the cross, the finished work of Calvary, and the open tomb. You see, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we take the bread and the cup. Did you know that those two elements represent the two great Christian holidays that we celebrate every year? Every year we celebrate Christmas. What's the other big Christian holiday? Easter, right? Christmas and Easter. It's those two Sundays a year that most people that don't go to church at all, they're going to be in church on Christmas and Easter. Why? Because they're, they're Christian celebrations, Christmas and Easter. Did you know that the Lord's Supper is a beautiful picture of both of those celebrations? For example, the bread. You know what the bread represents? The bread represents the reality that Jesus Christ took on humanity. The bread represents his body. That's why the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When we take that bread, we are celebrating the totality of the Christmas message that God became a man. We are remembering. Listen, we'll never fully understand all that it means that the one who existed outside the parameters of time chose to limit himself to humanity. We'll never understand that. But here's what that verse tells us. Everything that God is, Jesus is with skin on. Jesus is not a God. He's not a man who became God. Jesus is God who became a man. And every time we take that bread, we are remembering the great sacrifice of the in, the great doctrine of the incarnation and we are celebrating all that Christ accomplished by taking on humanity. But then Easter, we take the cup. The cup reminds us of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And that he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he rose again from the dead. What is that? It's the great doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You say, what in the world does that mean? Here's what that means. Christ died for us. Now listen to me. Jesus did not die for you and me so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus died for you and me because we couldn't. You see, it required a sinless sacrifice. No matter how good we try to be, we're not sinless. 
We could not sacrifice for our own sin. That's why God became a man, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, and he offered that body on the cross. And listen to what Paul says happened. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look on the screen. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And therein is the gospel, the great exchange that took place. Here's what happened. Jesus came, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life. He offered that body on the cross. On the cross, God poured all of the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, out on Jesus. And Jesus bore the penalty of our sin. He died for our sin, but he didn't stay dead. Amen? Hey, hey, he didn't stay dead. Amen? Listen, if he's still dead, we don't have any hope. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin. Now, here's what the Bible says. When you and I turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible says he became sin for us. We become the very righteousness of God in him. Here's what that means. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus and the glory of gospel. It's not as if God just forgives me of my sin and treats me as if I'd never sinned. No. God now sees me as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Did I deserve that? No. That's the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory that we get to live in as children of God all because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. The gospel reminds us Or the Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity to remember all that the gospel accomplished for us. Now, now here on this point, I make this because we come from a lot of different backgrounds and different things. And I think this is a very significant point. Some people, I think, go too far here. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. And some people take that very literally. They would say that when we take the Lord's Supper today, that those elements literally become the body and the blood of Jesus, and we experience what he did for us as we take these elements. Let me me tell you three reasons why I do not believe that this is to be taken literally. Number one, the words that Jesus said. We believe as Christians in the inspiration of Scripture, what's called verbal plenary inspiration. Here's what that means. We believe that every word of Scripture is inspired by God. That means there's no words in here by accident. There's no words in here by coincidence. But that God in His sovereign wisdom inspired every word of Scripture. Jesus said, do this to remember me, not do this to experience me. Now, there were plenty of words in the Greek language that Jesus could have used to say, do this to experience me. But that's not what he said. He said, I want you to do this to remember me. Second reason I don't believe it's literal is because of the presence of Jesus when he said it. You must remember that the first time this was ever done, Jesus was in the room leading the practice. He was there. And he was there in his incarnation, meaning as a human being. And one of the great doctrines of the incarnation, one of the great teachings of that is not that Jesus stopped being God. He never stopped being God. He was 100% God, 100% man. But in his humanity, the Bible says that he laid aside the privileges of being God 
And he lived as a human being in dependence on the Father. If Jesus was in the room, and yet that was literally his body at the same time in his humanity, then he was in two places at one time, and it de-emphasizes the great truth of what Jesus did in taking on human flesh. Let me tell you a third reason I don't think it's to be taken literally. I don't think it's to be taken literally because the pattern of Jesus' teaching to use figurative language. Think about through the New Testament how many times Jesus said something like this, I am the door. Did anybody think for a minute that he was a piece of wood with a handle? No. Jesus said, I am the true vine. Did anybody think for a minute that he was going to be trailing down along the ground producing fruit? Jesus said, I am the living water. Did anybody come up to him with a cup to take a drink? No. He constantly and consistently used figurative language to communicate spiritual truth. When Jesus said, this is my body, listen to me, not for one second did any of the disciples in that room think they were about to eat Jesus. They didn't think that. They knew that he was saying that just like I would say this. Look up here on the screen at this picture. This is my family. Now, not one of you, when I said that, thought for a second when I said, this is my family, that I mean this image contained in this screen is literally my family, right? I mean, if that's what I meant, I might be half crazy, right? I mean, that's not my family. What is that? That is a picture of my family. But I didn't say, here's a picture of my family. I said, this is my family. Now, nobody in the room thought anything other than that is a picture that represents his family that he's talking about. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he said, here's a picture that I'm giving you. And I want you to use this picture to remember everything that I've accomplished. Let me give you a second statement. The Lord's Supper allows us to proclaim the power of the gospel in the present. Read that out loud with me. The Lord's Supper allows us to proclaim the power of the gospel in the present. Look at verse 26 in the passage that we read a moment ago. He said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The word proclaim here means to declare openly publicly or out loud. It means to announce or to make public. And it's a word that was used over and over in the book of Acts when describing the disciples as they spoke the gospel, as they shared the good news with other people. Every time we come together to take this supper, it demands that we unpack and publicly explain the glory of the gospel. And here's the sad reality. We are living in a culture in the church in America where we take the gospel for granted. We treat the gospel like it's the ABCs of Christianity. And once you get the gospel, then you move past the ABCs to the deeper stuff. Let me tell you something. The gospel's not the ABCs. The gospel's the whole alphabet, the book, the concordance, the table of contents, and everything in between. Without the gospel, you and I have no hope. Our identity is rooted in the gospel. Is there help to be found in understanding the issues of life and the Word of God? Absolutely. But listen to me. Principles are worthless without the gospel. We must first understand the gospel. And every time we 
we take this together, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded that the only hope we have, the only hope Las Vegas has, the only hope the world has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Oswald Chambers said it this way, The creative power of the redemption of God works in the souls of men only through the preaching of the gospel. Give you a third statement. The Lord's Supper inspires us to celebrate all that the gospel will accomplish in the future. I want you to read that with me out loud. The Lord's Supper inspires us to celebrate all that the gospel will accomplish in the future. Did you hear it? Listen to verse 26 again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes. You didn't hear it. Because if you'd have heard it, you'd have shouted or said something. You missed it. Did you hear what he said? I've given you a picture. And I want you to get together. And I want you to look at the picture. I want you to remember. I want you to proclaim. But listen to what he said. There's a time limit. You're only going to do this. Until I come. You know what that means, right? It means he's coming. Every time, every time we get together and we gather around this table and we take those elements, we're not just celebrating all that the gospel's done. Let me tell you what else we're celebrating. We're celebrating the reality that he is coming. Listen, before you get that cracker swallowed down into your stomach, he could come today. He could. It could happen today. He's coming. And listen, when he comes, we don't need a picture. You know why? Because then we'll have his presence. One of the things that I'm very blessed to, to be able to honor, to be able to do, is I get invited and get to travel all over the country and all over the world preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God. And I consider it a great, great honor and a great privilege of my life to get the opportunity to do that. And when I first started doing that years ago, I was kind of, you know how you are when you first start getting into the traveling thing, you're kind of enamored with travel and after about two weeks, that gets old, right? Those of you that travel with your job, you know that the glamour of travel gets old really, really fast. And one of the reasons that travel gets old is because you're always leaving your family and going away to speak somewhere. And it's one of the hardships of travel for me is I don't like being away from my family. And I'll get on an airplane sometimes, and I'll be sitting on an airplane over here at McCarran Airport just taking off. And we're not even off the runway yet, and I've already got my phone open to the pictures, and I'm flipping through pictures of my family because I'm already missing them. Can't wait to get back with them. And sometimes somebody will even notice sitting next to him and say, oh, is that your family? And then you get to start talking about them, right? You get to start telling them about your family and showing them your kids and talking about your wife and doing all that kind of stuff. But you know what I've noticed? When I'm at my house, I don't ever get out my phone and look at my pictures. You know why? I don't need to. They're there. You see, right now, we need a picture. But one day, we don't have to have this picture because we'll be able to have supper not in His honor. We'll be able to have supper with Him in His presence. And this celebrates that reality that He is coming again. 
fourth statement. And we'll take the supper together. The Lord's Supper encourages us to examine the impact of the gospel in my life today. Read that out loud with me. The Lord's Supper encourages us to examine the impact of the gospel in my life today. There's one more verse of scripture I want to show you here out of 1 Corinthians. It's verse 28 of this chapter. Look what he says. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, another reason Jesus gave us this is so that every time we take this, we stop and we just kind of do a little soul searching. For the last two weeks of my life, battling this little health thing that I've been going through, it's amazing how, you know, when you start battling something and you don't have any real answers, there's a lot of questions but no real answers you just start asking all kinds of questions. You just dig in and, man, you just put a microscope down on your life. Stuff I didn't even know was in my heart God's been showing me. And just sweet, intimate time with the Lord. But here's what Paul's saying about this practice. Jesus gave us this so that not just in times of affliction and hardship, but that in the regular seasons of our life, it's good for all of us to just stop and examine. The word examine means this. It means to put to trial. It's the idea of testing by questioning. And there are two areas that I think we all need to question before we take this. One is we need to examine our relationship or our fellowship with God. It's to first look this way and ask some questions. And maybe here's the first question you need to start with. Do I even know God? You see, there are a lot of people who participate in this practice thinking that somehow this practice is going to earn you favor with God. That somehow by doing this little ceremony, it's going to gain you entrance into the presence of God and somehow make you right. Listen to me. You can go over here and eat everything and drink everything on that table and it's not going to make you any more right with God. There's nothing in the picture. It's in what the picture represents. The gospel that we find life change and transformation and forgiveness. Do you even know God? If today you don't know God, in a few moments when we start taking this together, we're going to have some pastors here at the front where you can come to one of these pastors and say to them, I need Jesus. And they'll, sit, they'll have somebody sit down and show you from the Bible how you can be born again, how you can have a relationship with God. But for those of us who do know God today, the question we need to ask is, is there anything in my life that's hindering my fellowship with God? Here's some questions. Any unconfessed sin? Any open rebellion? An area of your life where you just kind of carved that out and said, God, I'll give you all this, but not this. Any impure relationships? Any unforgiveness towards somebody else? All that I need to deal with between me and God. Examine my heart. But then here's the second area. I should examine my fellowship relationship with other believers. Listen to what Paul wrote here in, in, in this same chapter. Before the verses that I've read for you today, listen to what he said in introducing this concept. Verse 17 of chapter 11. He said, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Wouldn't you love to read that about you in the Bible? I'm going to tell you something, but let me tell you, before I tell you, I'm not happy with you. 
Because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. The word division is the Greek word schisma. We get our English word schism from it. It's, it's something that's ripped or torn. And Paul says, here you are coming together to celebrate the glory of the gospel, and you've got relationships that have been torn all in the church, and people at odds with each other, not forgiving one another, not loving each other as Christ has called us to. And Paul says, man, we need to examine that. I need to look around me and see if there are relationships that are broken that I need to make right. Here's the question. Is there anything between me and a brother or sister in Christ that I need to get right? Maybe there's somebody in this room you need to go to before you even come to one of these tables. Just say, hey, I need to get this right. I'll close with this paragraph. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, wrote it. Listen to what he says about forgiveness. In Christ, the thing which we least deserve is that which we have been most freely given, forgiveness. How then do we dare not forgive those who have wronged us? The person who has sinned against us is no worse a sinner than we are. Therefore, we must forgive. This is not to deny or minimize the hurt caused by another sin, nor is it to excuse that sin. The sin was wrong. Being wronged causes bewilderment and sorrow, especially when the one who hurt us is someone we love. Our natural instinct is to question their love for us. But the ultimate question for the Christian is, do I truly love them? With a self-forgetful God kind of love. Our love must be magnanimous, big-hearted, lion-hearted, like the love of Jesus Christ. We must rise deliberately above resentment, bitterness, and pettiness. This is the kind of love that led Jesus to the cross. If we love with this kind of love, remembering all that we have been forgiven, we will forgive others. So here's what's about to happen. We're about to create some worship chaos. You all right with that a little bit? Don't panic. But here's what we're about to do. We're about to respond to what we've heard today by doing four things at once. Here are the four things. First of all, I want to give you an opportunity to do what we've just talked about, to examine your heart. You're going to see some people moving to some tables that are going to be serving the Lord's Supper in just a moment. But before we even go there, I want you to think about this principle of examination. Asking those questions, looking internally, preparing your heart. And as you do that, you notice today we've put a couple of crosses up here on the stage, right here at the steps. And maybe today God would speak to your heart. And maybe there's just something that you just want to come lay at the foot of the cross. Maybe it's something that God's revealed as you've been examining your heart. And before you even go to one of these tables to receive the Lord's Supper, you just want to come and just kneel here at the foot of the cross and just... Cast some things before the Lord. So first thing we're going to do is just examine our hearts. God, is there anything between us? Lord, is there anything with me and another brother or sister in Christ that needs to be made right? Second thing that's going to happen is intercession. We're going to have some of our pastors here at the front. During this time of responsive worship, maybe the Lord's spoken to you and there's something on your heart that's a big burden. Maybe, to begin with, you've discovered I don't know God and I want to know God I want to be saved you can come to one of these pastors and say to them I need Jesus and 
they'll have somebody sit down with you and show you from a Bible how you can experience the love of God and be born again and have a relationship with God. But for those of you that know God, maybe today you just have a burden with your job or your health or your family, your, your finances, resources, whatever it is, a relationship. And you just need a pastor to just pray with you. While we're moving around and worshiping together, you can come to any one of these pastors. They'd be honored to pray for you and pray with you about the burden that's on your heart. Here's the third thing we're going to do. We're going to worship by taking the Lord's Supper. We have many stations set up. There's two here at the edge of the stage. There's two in the corners, two in the back corners, one in the back middle. They're all the same. And after you've had a moment to examine your heart and dealt with some things before God, as the Lord leads, you just move to one of these tables. Any one of them, they're all the same. And we have some hosts there that are going to serve you the Lord's Supper. And you can take it right there. You can take it when you get back to your seat, however is most comfortable for you. We're going to worship by taking the Lord's Supper. And we're going to remember and we're going to think about all that He's accomplished for us. Here's the last thing we're going to do. We're going to praise. While we're doing all of this, our worship team is going to be here leading us in praise. And after you've finished examining your heart and praying with a pastor or praying here at the altar and taking the Lord's Supper, you just move back to your seat and you just join in a chorus of praise as we worship God together in response to everything that He's done for us.